Hello everyone, I'm Mark Shenton, um, as usual hosting this opera preview. Um, welcome. Um, I'm actually, because the panel is so huge, I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves. So if I pass it down, if you say who you are and what you do on the show. Uh, I'm Mark Biggins. I am the assistant chorus master here at ENO, but I have been acting chorus master since Christmas, and so I have been chorus mastering this show, looking after the chorus. <laughs> I'm Christina McGlynn, I'm the head of costume, and I'm the costume supervisor for Traviata. I'm Luca Nyomoyake, South African tenor. I'm Alfredo. Mm -hmm. I'm Daniel Kramer, I'm directing. I'm Claudia Boyle, and I sing the role of Violetta. Gonzalo Costa, I'm leading the, the orchestra in the production. I'm Andy Smith, and I'm on the music staff here at ENO. Daniel, I'm going to start with you, because this is uh, your first production in situ as Artistic Director. How did you choose uh, this as your debut as Artistic Director? Well, actually, I was already hired to do Traviata before <laughs> <laughs> I was Artistic Director. Uh, Bob Holland, my associate, had already uh, commissioned me to do it with Theatre Basel. What changed was my approach to the opera when I became the artistic director. So you were going to do it in a co-production, were you? With... It, it was a co-production. It opened in Basel in uh, October of this right, year. Right, right. But I changed my approach to the opera. So, so you've already done it, um, not with these, the, no, these singers? No, completely, it's uh, completely new for these singers, and we've obviously completely adapted it to who Claudia is, who Lucano is, who our chorus um, are, and in particular, singing in English is very different than singing in Italian. Uh, there are line readings when you're singing in a foreign language, which are easier for, I think, people to bend the rules about. But when you're singing in your own native language, yeah. the way your relationship to subtext and deconstruction or modern psychology against classical psychology are very different. So it feels, I mean, for me, it's a very new, much more detailed production. Presumably, the, is the physical staging the same, the, the sets and costumes? Yeah, 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 overall. Yeah. I mean, I think every costume adapts to every singer, but yeah, it's absolutely the sets. They were packed up last night in Switzerland, and we're praying to every god on earth that they arrive despite this lovely so-called blizzard. Right. <laughs> so, because obviously you're at the moment up in West Hampstead rehearsing. Uh, when do you come to the Collie? One week from tomorrow we are on stage. So it's, a, it's that funnel week when, when they start pulling it out of the, of the bag times a thousand, or uh, for example, today's rehearsal, I, in my experience, as a singer gets very close to the stage rehearsals, they either completely do it in the studio or they pull way back and mark everything. So it's very technical because right now they're at that incredible place which you want as a director where they now know it better than I do. They own the psychology better than I do and they know exactly in my projection where, how they're targeting to the first stage rehearsal. It's a very personal thing, especially for opera singers. Now, now, Claudia, of course, this is a stage you've sung on before. You were in Mabel in The Pirates of Penzance yes, with yep. Mike Lee. This is quite a, quite a contrast in terms of roles, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I don't think you could get any more different than Mabel and Violetta. <laughs> Although there's probably some of Mabel in Violetta sometimes. But um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's something that I love. It's, it's a role I think every soprano wants, wants to sing. It's, it's, it's a dream. It's a dream role, both musically and dramatically. Um, she just goes through such a journey from the start of this opera to the finish. Um, and I like her character. I think, I think when, when, when you like a character, it's, it's, it's wonderful to be able to play her. I, it's, it's a character I deeply respect. Um, and she has so much dignity. Um, 
but she's not a victim. I mean, she, uh, essentially she is a victim, but I don't think she sees herself as one. Um, so, yes, it's, it's, it's a great role to sing. It's not an opera you've done before? I have done it. I've done three productions before. Oh. Um, so this is my fourth Right. But, but it's a new translation, is it? Oh, yes, I've so never sung it in English. English, no. no, no, no. Right. So that, um, that was really interesting, I suppose. It's, it's, it's so much easier to learn something than it is to unlearn something, in, in a way. So that was one of, the, one of the things I was, you know, finding my way around. And, of course, we were looking at the translation very carefully and... In rehearsals, there were some parts that didn't really quite relate to exactly what the Italian was was um, meaning at that time. So we, we really kind of looked into the translation a lot. Where, but I think, I think it's great now, I have to say. Where were your other productions? Um, I did two productions in Ireland, and then I did a production in Austria, in Klagenfurt. Actually, I was just there in the summer. So, right, right. Yeah, I did a lot of productions, yeah. I mean, I suppose that's, there, that's yeah. the joy of this repertoire, isn't it? That you can keep revisiting it. Yeah, it is. And I suppose when, once you sing a role and, and it grows and grows, it gets just so much more exciting to, to perform it because you're so comfortable with it. You, you, know, you, you know your way through it. I mean, technically you do. But it's also great to, because I'm finding so many new things with them. Um, you know, Daniel, that, we, that I hadn't done before, that I hadn't looked at before. So I, I think it's always very exciting to find new facets to your character and new ways to play something. Yeah. Uh, Lucania, uh, you, know, um, you've, you did this opera before at the Cape Town Opera, but you didn't play this role, obviously. So you know this, you know the opera. Well, actually, I played Alfredo. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah. you did? You did? Yeah. Right, oh, yes, okay. Uh, sorry, I got that bit wrong. Um, uh, so, because Cape Town is where you're f from, where you've, where you've sung most at the Cape Town Opera. Yeah, um, from, I started 2010, Cape Town Opera, from the studio, um, Young Artist Programme, and I was a soloist for six years. And, and, uh, and we've seen you in London in Porgy and Bess, because that came from Cape Town Opera. Um, various of their shows have come to places like The Young Vic, which is where you've worked quite a few times, um, Daniel. Um, so, um, but that's a very different and more intimate space, The Young Vic, as in compared to the, opera, uh, the, the Coliseum. Is this the biggest theatre that you've performed in? Yes, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes, this one is the biggest. Uh, Performed in Portugal, uh, but this one is the biggest. Yeah, it, I, it, obviously you've not been on the stage yet to say to to in front of an audience. But is it intimidating the idea that uh, this is going to be the, this big house? I just forget about everything and concentrate on what I'm doing. Right, right, right. Absolutely. Um, and how did you guys get cast in this opera? How, how did you how did you end up with the NO? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Well, I, um, I had just become artistic director, and I wanted, of I really wanted a Violetta who had sung here before, who had um, come up through the house. We don't, in England, we don't have an unending list of Violettas. We don't produce giant um, Italian soprano voices as much, to be fair. And I saw Claudia in Pearl Fishers here on the main stage, and I tweeted, and I don't tweet often, because um, she had, if you saw Pearl Fisher, some of you must have heard Claudia sing Pearl Fisher's. And she literally um, did this thing, which I believe only opera can do. She stopped time with her voice um, because Claudia has this unbelievable ability to float notes, which is what you know, we want from a Violetta in particular in act two and act three. Um, although she's found a moment in act one, brace yourselves. <laughs> I've had to nickname the moment when she does it. So. 
there was just a whole there was a whole movement to uh, ensure that Claudia was going to be ready to sing it in a 2,500 seat house because that's different than a 1,200 seat house. And she came in and sh she sang it for Martin Brabens, our music director, and I. And we both turned to each other and said, "Never in our lives will we hear it sung with that much musicianship." No, we did. And then um, I wanted uh, an Alfredo who was going to be a surprise. Um, um, <laughs> I wanted an Alfredo who was going to um, be new to us. Um, I distinctly, because of so much of the criticism, I was not looking towards America immediately because we get a lot of criticism for importing Americans and I thought, why put myself up for that target? <laughs> Show one. Um, and, but I knew I needed someone who would be very comfortable with English and I heard two tapes of Lucanio singing, and he had just made finalist in BBC Cardiff Singer of the World, which helped. And, uh, and we said, this is the right, this is the right risk to take. Uh, it's a, as you've just heard, it's a huge uh, Italian-style voice, and most importantly for me, uh, Lucanio has that cry that signature tenor cry where it sounds like he's crying as he flips the high note. And I require that for my Italian tenors. <laughs> yeah, it's very emotional. Domingo does it, Peter Auti does it, but some tenors don't do it. And if you don't do it, I'm not interested. <laughs> for the Italian rep, it's not gonna go well with Britain <laughs> or Handel. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It, it's the soul breaking. It's really bearing the soul, as Claudia just said. So it was a, it was a really, it was a, it, my board were a little bit frustrated with how long it took me to agree to it, but it felt so important for my, first, um, for my first show as artistic director that I was really celebrating someone who's truly um, um, come up through our house and is, 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 a, is a true star for English National Opera and now on the international stage. And then the ability to, I hope, um, be a part. I mean, Lucanio's talent is launching his own career, but the idea that we could be a springboard for Lucanio's incredible um, one-off voice to be heard on the global stage felt like an incredible opportunity. So, and we're so proud of what they're both doing in the rehearsal room. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Anna Kanya, you, you've been here this year and you're going off to, is it Vienna, did you say, next? Yes, Vienna. Uh, I have a two-year contract with the Vienna Staatsopera. Two years, so Daniel won't be able to get you back for two years? Well, we can negotiate. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel, after what you were saying about um, your, your... Well, first of all, the first question I want to ask you was that the, the mention you made of the board. Do you need board approval for your, your choices? N not at all, but they were noticing how very long it was taking. Right. Uh, because, you know, really, one of the first things I've done is to get us on a three-year timeline, which English National Opera was never on before, so I'm currently signing off programming for 2021. Right. And... Um, they were. They kept going. How are you trying to get us ahead? But you haven't cast your own show yet. But you know. So no, I don't need board approval. No. But uh, board support is a useful thing to have. Yeah, but obviously you work very closely with the music department. That's that's what. I, I Absolutely, our head of casting, Michelle Williams, and our MD, Martin Brabens, were a part of all of it. Right, Absolutely. right. And then of course we have two of the music department with us tonight. So can I turn to them to ask them how how, how they, what their role in the shows? Obviously, this is a a. a turning point for the for you know a new artistic director um but you've you've done traviata before here presumably yes I, i've lost count really how many times i've been here 26 years in the company um so we must have done it five or six times different productions 
And we don't get to, we haven't seen it yet, of course. We've done orchestral rehearsals and we've done Zitz Prober with the singers alone. We don't see the theatre till next week, isn't it? So it'll be just as much a surprise to us and, as for yourself. And presumably you never see it, really, if you're always in the pit. Well, where I, where I sit, I can get a bit of a free <laughs> <laughs> Is that frustrating? You always know what the leading violinist thinks. <laughs> Is it frustrating, though, to, to, to be involved in these productions and never see them right through? No, there's plenty for us to do in the pit anyway. So, and, and actually, listening is, is the main part of our job. So yes. we just imagine from the audience response how it's going on stage. Yeah, yeah. And, and Mark, obviously, your, your role is, is integral to uh, the, the chorus. Is, is kind of the cornerstone of ENO's operation, isn't it? So I'm glad that you said that. Um, <laughs> And you, how long have you been at ENO? Um, I just started at ENO in August, so I guess I'm the newbie here. Uh, I think I am the newest member of the music staff. Uh, and for us, uh, the chorus is on a slightly different timeline rather than uh, these guys have been in the rehearsal room mostly mean all the time for weeks and weeks and weeks. We started learning Traviata in November. We were doing music calls with me. We were learning the music, particularly the two chorus scenes which have not been in their most recent productions. Um, and then we are back balancing up rehearsing Traviata alongside, at the moment, performing Iolanthi and performing Satyagraha, and also rehearsing Figaro, which is coming up next. So this week, and many of our choristers are also covering roles in operas, including Midsummer Night's Dream. So for some of our chorus members, they will be working on five different operas this week. Um, and one of the biggest challenges, I think, for me was uh, that each of those composers, Philip Glass, you know, Sullivan, we also were working on Nico Muli before Christmas, demands uh, a different vocal approach. I mean, we had Aida at the beginning of the season, which was, and now we're back in that kind of sound world. And to get them to have that flexibility that last, that tomorrow night they will be singing Philip Glass, and then the following day to be singing Verdi, and to find immediately the colours and the sounds that we need in their singing. Right, wow. So it's quite a varied job, musically speaking, yes. Um, and the last person on the panel that we haven't spoken to yet um, is uh, Christina, Christina McGlynn. You, you work on the, cos you're working on the cos head of costumes. Yes. Um, and we've got some, some of your costumes, we've got one of your costumes here. Violetta's Act Two dress, and um, it, because this was a co-production with Basil, I went out to see the production last year. Um, and as part of my role as head of costume, I, I go and I, I see the shows and I report back, and I am constantly thinking about how we can create those shows in our house. Um, because this co-production, we don't get the costumes. I had the opportunity to recreate all of them, so you'll be seeing a fresh set when you go to opening night. Um, but with this costume in particular, the reason why I brought it is when I saw it in. Basel, um, and I spoke to Esther, our designer, I wanted to do our interpretation of this dress slightly differently than the other house had done. Um, I wanted to go back to her original design and really kind of pop the colours. For me, Act two is um, a almost technicolor and very romantic scene, very different from what we've seen in act one with all the chorus and all the kind of gaudiness of the party and the seediness. So I wanted Violetta to look very fragile, um, but also that we had this fabric printed because I'm sure this production will come back time and time again and we will need to redo this dress numerous times. I thought, let's get it out of the way. Let's print it um, so that we've got that on file for next time. But we. 
um, played around with the flat arm um, with the birds. So um, we punched up the colors and we laid it out so that you've got this kind of graduation going on there. Um, and it just, yeah, so, so this was quite an important dress for me when I saw the production the first time. And hopefully when we see it on stage next week with Claudia wearing it, it will be even more special. And how many costumes in all are you, have you had to make for this, this show? We've, ha we've had to make all of them, but I have to prioritize in my role as to what we make and what we can kind of cheat, what we can pull from our stock, what we can buy and purchase. So I've spent all the money on the principals and um, we've got lovely suiting going on, um, but the chorus, I kind of scrimped a little bit. So on the chorus men, a lot of kind of morning wear and ex-hire wear, but we've still worked into it. The ladies is a mixture of stuff that was bought, um, but also made, but everything's been embellished with sequins, hot stones, feathers. I don't think I have a bit of bling left untouched in my whole department. It's all on this show. And as head of costumes, of course, you have, um, uh, like, like the music department, you have many multiple shows to work on simultaneously. So there's a lot of juggling going on. There's a lot of juggling going on. We do multiple fittings with the chorus, so we try to get them all in for one day, and we'll fit three or four different shows at the same time. Um, we've had rehearsals for a dream going on and notes coming back and forth for that. We've got, again, like the chorus, we've got Figaro coming into production as well, and also looking at stuff next year and the following year as well. So it's constant kind of juggling. This is the new three-year time frame that Daniel's setting you. <laughs> so, 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 yeah, Daniel, back to you. Um, so obviously you can't, at this point you've only announced this season, haven't you? You can't tell us about next season yet. That is correct. <laughs> <laughs> there are two things which are very public next season. I can go over those if you'd like. Yeah. Well, um, in the autumn we're very proud that we're doing, for the centenary of World War I, um, a first time ever staged in this country, um, Benjamin Britten's War Requiem. Uh, which we just gave a design presentation for last week with an incredible designer who's doing it. And that's, um, we think, a really special event for this country since Britain is sort of an unofficial um, house composer for us. Yeah. And uh, to bring that piece to light with our chorus and our orchestra, that's the full orchestra and a chamber orchestra, but to really you know, give voice to that piece now and let our culture ask these questions together through music about the history of our grief and our wars and where we are and where we're going is a really important role, I think, of what English National Opera can and must do for our nation. And then kind of the opposite end of the spectrum is a world premiere of Jack the Ripper, The Women of Whitechapel, um, which is written by um, London's kind of Orfei of the moment, Ian Bell, who's this dear, incredible young man, self-taught. And uh, I've known him for about four years now and fell so in love with his music and him as a human being. And this will be his third London trilogy opera. He did Harlot's Progress at Teatro Enderveen, starring Diana Damrau. And then he did, um, in parentheses, uh, at Welsh National Opera, which came to the Royal Opera House. And the great news is that he has custom written the starring role for Claudia Boyle. So Claudia and I get to collaborate again this time next spring. Are you directing? You're obviously directing it. I am. Yes. I am. I'm directing. Well, I'm directing both of those pieces, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, which turned out um, just that everything fell in that year. For those are the two that I'm doing. I'm not always doing two pieces. I don't have time. But um, I, it's really important to me, Jack the Ripper, because Ian's entire take on the piece is that we're not celebrating um, Ripper. Ripper does not actually appear on stage. We are focusing on the women 
and the women who come together. In the face of such violence, we will refuse to represent such violence or celebrate it on stage. And we're really looking at these, the story of five incredible women, uh, Josephine Barstow, Janice Kelly, Sue Bickley, no, uh, Sue Bullock, and Claudia, and Mary McLaughlin. Um, so it'll be an all-star uh, powerhouse of these women who come together in their grief, and in their fear, and in their pride, and in their rage. And uh, it feels like another incredible moment, uh, commissioned well before Harvey Weinstein helped change the world. Yes. Truly. And, but Ian was, of course, as any great poet is, ahead of the moment. And so we're really excited for both of those pieces next and season. And that's in the, main, in the main house? Absolutely. Yeah. Both are on the main stage. Because your earliest association with this company was um, when you worked at the Young Vic for them. For the, for the, yes. For... My first piece was 10 years ago, uh, right now, 10 years ago this month. I did Harrison Burtwistle's Punch and Judy at the Young Vic. I was one of the first young directors in John Barry's initiative to find new opera directors. And we were very fortunate. We got a South Bank Award. And then John hired me to do Bluebeard's Castle. Yeah, which was also a co-production, wasn't it? And you took that to... Uh, uh, Gergiev saw it and ended up buying it into Russia because it was appropriately dark enough for Gergiev. <laughs> <laughs> and so did which you... Which saying a lot for a Russian. Did you, did, did you go to Russia to redirect it? I went to Russia three times to direct it. It won a Golden Mask Award in Russia. And then Gergiev subsequently hired me to do Peleus and Melisande, yeah. which is incredible. But I guess your big, biggest one here was Tristan. Yeah, yeah, well, on every level, five yes. hours of Wagner and Anish Kapoor and Stuart Skelton. Yes, yes. yes. Big. Quite a big... Uh, so, so this is small potatoes compared to that. Oh, well, I mean, it's a, I mean, actually, I feel much more pressure with Traviata because Traviata is, you know, a, alongside Carmen in Bohème, one of the most famous operas in the whole world. And people who are scared of opera or people who don't know about opera, somehow they know the title La Traviata. Somehow they've heard the music that you just heard tonight, be that on a soap commercial from the 80s or ice skating competitions. The Verdi's Traviata, because it does, in my opinion, ennobilize this incredible woman, we know it. It's in the DNA of our, of our culture in the West. And so coming to that as a director versus Tristan, which is a very isolated, specific, art house Wagnerian audience who know it inside out and listen to it on repeat. Um, Traviata is an opportunity for me to speak with people who might be going across the street to see a musical you know, are people who have never seen an opera before. So I think I felt as a director, again, as soon as I got the artistic director job, I completely changed my entire approach to the opera to make sure it was so completely accessible to a larger public. And really, the way that the opera starts is this incredible party. And that's what we've so tried to do for act one is like curtain goes up and welcome to the party of the century. And hopefully you want to be on that stage. You want to be at that party. And then act two becomes something much more serious, as, as those of you who probably everyone in this room know the opera, we really focus the story. And then act three, once we really have the audience's trust, I hope we take it into this place that I feel English National Opera must. You know, there have been three, tra three Traviatas in London in the last 12 months, two at the Royal Opera House and one at Glyndebourne. So what is different about English National Opera's Traviata versus those Traviatas? What is different about English National Opera in dialogue with our incredible sister house, the Royal Opera House? And that was an incredible journey as well, to be able to go, OK, I want everyone to be able to enjoy it, and it has to have a twist. Yeah. And that's been a, 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 the most complex journey I've had as a director. And the twist being, can you reveal? Well, that would just give it all away. Come <laughs> see. There's a little video on the YouTube if you have to. but. 
I would say that for me, um, to go to the depth of the piece, um, in 2018, I really, um, being um, a gay white male with the agency to empower other artists to have jobs, which is very much how I view my job. I have the agency to give voices that aren't heard agency. I didn't want to see um, a victimized female on stage. I just feel like the time for that has passed. I wanted to pay honor and respect to the complexity of what it means to be a courtesan, which some people don't like saying this, but means she is a sex worker on some level, whether we like it or not. She has contracted a fatal disease by being a sex worker. And while I didn't want to do a sort of modern 1980s miniskirt production, I don't want to see it. We have the Germans to do that. <laughs> uh, while I didn't want to do that, I didn't also want to see a woman dying and losing the battle. I've spent some time myself working in hospice, and I wanted to see a woman who, however complex, and it is complex, Act Three, uh, had a, there's a choice to transition. Death can be a choice as well, and not suicide. I don't mean suicide. So it was really, um, Act Three really grew out of this desire to see a woman uh, trying to, to have agency when she feels like she has very little, and she has been very wronged uh, directly by the men in that world. Even Alfredo, sadly, wrongs her on, as we all know, a very deep public humiliation at the climax of Act Two. It's funny, I read a piece only today in the New York Times about uh, a slew of Broadway musicals that are being revived, uh, which are, again, in the life post-Weinstein world, have to be reinvented. Musicals like My Fair Lady and Carousel, both of whom, yeah, in Carousel, uh, the, the woman is, is, is hit by the man and she says, sometimes you don't feel the pain. So it, it, it's, a, it's a really interesting current debate. Um, and, and, and indeed, one of the other Broadway revived musical, new musicals that's been done this season is Pretty Woman, which is also about a courtesan, a modern day courtesan. So, um, yeah, how, how does that feel like playing this new version, Claud Claudia? Very much. Um, I, I I love it. I mean, I I'm, I'm always drawn to 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 seeing a character's strengths rather than their weaknesses, and I think it's a, I think it's a great it's a great way to look at it, um, especially in the time that is currently. Um, but yeah, I think it's 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 very very interesting. And, and as Daniel said, I mean, who 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 does want to see a woman that is just victimized from start to finish? Um, but also, I think she she really doesn't see herself as as that. She doesn't feel sorry for herself, and I think that's what's very important and dignified about this character. Yeah, and for you, uh, playing Alfredo, Alfredo, um, is is this a diff this must be a different take for you again? It obviously impacts that decision impacts on the way you play your role. Well, yes, it does because normally you only see Alfredo's anger in at two finale, and then after that he you see remorse and stuff, but in this one, he, he, you, you see he has that bipolar thing. He, he can change any time, but he, he tries to hold himself. So yes, this one is different. Right, right. Um, one of the things you, as an artistic director of this company, um, this predates you, Daniel, but the, the fact that this house now hosts musicals. This summer we're doing, the, you're doing chess. Um, and you mentioned the audience that you're trying to attract to La Traviata maybe seeing musicals as well. Do you think, I'm, when the first time I met you was when you were directing Hair at the Gate Theatre, so a long time ago. Um, uh, do you see there's an over, uh, do you see it inhabiting the same world, musical theatre and opera? 
I think it's fantastic that in, in being involved with this spring musical, um, we don't produce it exclusively on our own. It's very much a co-production with Grade Linnet, but that we're absolutely getting new um, people into the English National Opera who are having a relationship with this space because this space is a, a, a dream home for the music arts. And we're seeing them cross over to productions like Traviata and Butterfly. They're not necessarily yet rocking up to Lulu, but, but thus begins a journey. You know, if you can get from Sunset Boulevard to Butterfly, then, then Rosen Cavalier isn't such a large step. And then you realize that you're in the hands of a master of the highest degree on earth, in my opinion, sorry. And then once you experience your Rosen Cavalier, you might be ready to actually try that Britain thing, that Peter Grimes thing, which once you have it once, it's an addiction for life. Who doesn't want to hear Moonlight on repeat or hear that Peter Grimes, Peter Grimes? Yeah, and then once you graduate from your Britain, and we're slowly being able to track this, but it's a seven-year journey to recruiting someone who's then going to sit down at Yanufa and say, this is it. So it's an incredible thing that we can celebrate the whole spectrum of the music arts. And presumably this is also good, good and varied for the music department. Um, I mean, you guys play in the musical, the musical as well? The chorus are involved in the musical, and so that's kind of perhaps at one very far extreme end of the spectrum of what the chorus is able to do. Um, but I think that one of the joys of being in a company in, in a chorus like ours is that you, you know, I won't say not every chorus member loves everything equally, and actually we have people for whom you know singing Philip Glass is the greatest pleasure that they have. You know that that is an amazing thing that they do in this company. For some people, as soon as their Verdi score opens, I mean, suddenly you see smiles all around. But you know, there is there really is something for everyone and we have we have a number of choruses for whom working on the musicals and being that sort of more west end flavor of of, of the work is a huge attraction actually and something that they really enjoy doing and for you um yeah we are 66 in the orchestra and i'm sure you get 66 different opinions about what is their favorite <laughs> opera <laughs> or musical because i mean I, I know some of my colleagues are really looking forward to chess and others less so but it's 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 a great discipline we're, we're going to be on stage i believe um it's amplified as well, so it's a different technique we have to employ. Um, great tunes. I think, I think it's, it's worth doing. And, and of course, a West End musical never wouldn't have 66 pieces, um, uh, players. That's a luxury. Yeah. Even the, the GNS that we're doing, I think, to have such a large orchestra is, is quite rare as well. It's fairly unique, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, is, is it all, do you always use all your musicians, or do you sometimes vary the, the mix? <clears throat> no, chess, I think, will have a smaller orchestra mainly strings and some brass and, yeah. and keyboards. Um, yeah, it varies. It's just, it's just a, a piece of music. Whether yeah. it's light music or opera, it's the same. Uh, and of course, Pachess is written by Benny and Bjorn, who uh, co wrote the half of ABBA. Uh, so, uh, but it's a very, it is quite an operatic score, actually. It's a score that, I mean, I, I adore it myself. Um, I've seen every production there has ever been. Um, so. I, I don't know, but I'm sure the melodies will be going around my head once we start. <laughs> Indeed, the earworms, earworm melodies. Um, Daniel, are you tempted to direct a, a musical in this house? I feel like that's not high on my list. Um, I kind of walked away from the commercial world for a reason, do you know? Yeah. I, there's a complexity I, I want when I go to the performing arts, which is not, I mean, there's room for all of the trees in the forest, do you know? But for me, um, 
you know, I'm working on a Burt Whistle piece right now. I'm working on Electra right now. I'm working on Hercules right now. I'm working on Bohem right now. I'm working on Turandot right now. Um, and there's a, there's a complexity of music, even though I don't have their mu musicality, I do read music. And um, there's a depth and a complexity of emotion that I think that opera can bring, which Chekhov can bring. You know, and I think that contemporary musical theater has started to go in a little bit of a different direction in terms of what sort of emotion they want. And that's different than Fiddler on the Roof, which is a masterpiece, in my opinion. Um, I would, I've toyed with the idea, you know, I would love to do a, a, a magnificent superstar with the full chorus, because when I was at university, I did a gospel superstar. And I would love to do hair again. And I would like to do hair with all adults looking back. But um, to, to look at back at what wasn't achieved, but they come in a queue. Yeah. And I need to do Rosen Cavalier, and I need to do uh, about 17 other operas first, <laughs> <laughs> including Parsifal. So, and um, at two a year, that's your yeah, next, that's your next exactly, eight or nine years. Exactly. Mark, so. But again, I think it's great that the, great that the house has a relationship to musical theater. I'm, I think everyone in the, in the critical industry know that there's, I have no snobbery against musical theater. I love music. I love the music arts. I love dance because it uses music. Yeah. Um, what's funny is the older I get, the harder and harder it is for me to go and listen to a play. I'm like, oh my God, there are so many words. Shh, shh, <laughs> sing something, you know? And of course, if you do it to do hair here, the challenge will be to get the chorus to go naked, presumably. I would not ask the chorus to go <laughs> It naked. might not be a challenge. <laughs> you choose your battles in life. You choose your battles in life. Um, I mean, your, your production at The Gate, which is a tiny, tiny theatre in Notting Hill, was, was one of the great musical moments of my life. I thought it was a fantastic production. And your, your lead boy, um, Charles Aitken, who be has become quite a West End name now, uh, was quite a discovery. So, you know, you, you, you are good at discovering people. Well, I, you know, I, that's one of my biggest passions, just like I love teaching. I love teaching so much. Um, I'm very proud of being a guest professor at Harvard and at Brown in America. And um, so many people like John Barry and David Lan and Alistair Spaulding took a risk on me. And um, it's hard as I turn 41 that, you know, I start to get, uh, I'm no longer the new kid on the block, which is great, but it's such an important moment to pass the baton. And I love directing and I always will, but I'm so interested in what the new voices are saying and, and, and the new talents who, who can be launched. I just think that's, my, my parents are teachers and that's an act of grace and it's the most important thing to, to, to give back to all those who gave. You know, I always find it difficult that artists and athletes are paid more than teachers. I really do. Because I think that my mother's a teacher, my father was a headmaster and education is the best tool we have to change the world. And that's why I believe more than anything at English National Opera. You know, we talk so much about our main stage work. We talk so much about our new outside work, which is fantastic, because we're getting great young audiences to chamber operas, like Dido and Anais, like Paul Bunyan, um, like Asus and Galatea. But our Bayless work, working with children ages 11 to 18, who don't get the music arts. Why? Because our government has cut them from the classrooms. And people are forgetting the basic fact that l creativity is lateral thinking. And if you want to be a great banker, if you want to solve Brexit, if you want to be the prime minister, 
The number one thing you need is lateral thinking, which is creativity. How am I gonna get over this wall and around this obstacle? And it is drawing, it is painting, it is singing, it is acting, it is improvisation. That is creative thinking. It's as important as math. And I believe our Bailey's program is one of the reasons we truly exist for the Arts Council. And one of the most important things we can do is to make sure there's a future legacy of children knowing that the arts are a viable, essential part of our culture and worth a full-time paycheck. So leading on from that, I, the question I'm going to ask the entire panel is how you got here. How did you, what was, what was your thing that got you into, the opera, into opera and into, the, into this business? Um, just simple, simple um, phoning a friend who was the leader at the time, Barry Griffiths, who was the leader here for 13, 14 years, looking for a job. Wasn't really top of my list to, to play opera, but as soon as I came, Thought, gosh, this is this is really exciting. It's really like accompanying a concerto for the whole evening. So it's three hours of real concentration, and of course, every night is different. Really, every production is completely different. The, the singers can, you know, feel less well, and so they take a slower tempo. Uh, you know, it could be different different musicians in the pit. You know, so every night is exciting. And you know, I suppose I was going to stay two years, and I stayed twenty six. <laughs> <laughs> so I do like it here very much. Thank you. Claudia? Um, I always used to make fun of opera when I was younger, so it's quite ironic that I'm an opera singer now. Um, I, always, um, I actually studied the cello and did my degree on the cello. And um, so that was my, yeah, that was what I was going to do. Um, I could have brought it here tonight. We could have done a duet. But um, uh, no, and, and it was halfway through my, my, my degree. I, I played in some of the operas um, at my college, in the Royal Irish Academy in... Dublin, and it, was, it just wasn't enough for me. I mean, I absolutely loved it, but personally, it wasn't enough. I mean, I, I had always done drama, and um, I was a bit of a, you know, I was the class clown, and it, just for me, it wasn't enough. So it was halfway through then. I had always done part-time singing lessons, and I spoke to my teacher, and uh, yeah, I just wanted to be up on the stage. I, I didn't want to be in the pit, so. <laughs> That's how you're here. That was the reason, really. So yeah, and I haven't looked back since. And then I did a young artist course in the Salzburg Festival, and that was a great place to be. If you're a young singer, I mean, the, a place like the Salzburg Festival, um, it's just everybody who's everybody is there. You get to sing for great people. And I got a good break. I got to sing for Ricardo Muti, who did like me. And, and Rome Opera then cast me in, um, in a couple of operas. So I suppose it just snowballed from, from there for me, yeah. Great, thank you. Well, I was a rugby player. I didn't sing at school. <laughs> I didn't sing, I didn't do it, I was just playing rugby. And then um, 2002, I uh, went to university during my first year, information technology. And my friend, he was studying in Cape Town. I was studying in Port Elizabeth. He came back, when he came back um, holiday, he gave me a CD of three tenors. And then Luciano Pavarotti was singing a song Norma. And then I said, like this. Let me try it. The following year, I stopped IT. I went to university and studied singing. And that was it. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Brilliant. Um, I went to the 
College Conservatory of Music in Cincinnati, and the opera department had the best parties. So <laughs> that was kind of my first introduction. But it was also from a design point of view. I mean, the diversity of design that you get with opera, the size, the scale, and the spectacle of it, plus that whole moment when you're watching it with the orchestra and the power of the chorus and, and the live performance. I don't think anything else can top it. So I got the bite quite early and then stuck with it. Um, I grew up as an oboist and a pianist, but mainly as an orchestral musician. That was what I did. I went to university, uh, started conducting, and all my run-ins with singers were desperately unsatisfactory. Um, I, I accompanied them and I loved them, but when they seemed to be in a group, it just never seemed to work out. And so uh, I actually ended up studying for a PhD in music theory in the States. Uh, which I did for a couple of years and had a vision of another life, which then eventually terrified me, and I ran away to join a circus, I guess. Um, but uh, I, it was actually, I, at the, at, I was studying at Yale, and uh, I joined the Yale Opera Studio as a staff pianist, and it was there working with some of the voices which go into the, the great young artist programs in the States uh, that I just realized what it was uh, to have voices like that and the amazing possibilities and potential. And that I, you know, I was going to be missing out if I was not working, working with voices like that. Uh, and from that point, I moved back to London and studied at the Royal College of Music. But I, you know, I have, if I didn't have those voices in my life, I would be, it would be a much poorer place. And so that was kind of the turning point, was working with those people. And for me, I, I'm a theatre critic by, by trade, um, and I love musical theatre, but uh, I, I think uh, opera is basically just posh musicals, um, and, it's, and, and, I tr and I treat them as my night off. Uh, I can come here to have fun and enjoy myself rather than be working. So that's the reason I love opera. Um, now I'm going to throw it out to you guys. What questions would you like to ask? Anybody first? Yeah. Uh, the question is, because we have to repeat the questions, is uh, you're attracted to tragic music, uh, operas. Would you like to do something lighter? Well, I do have a sense of humor, actually. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I view sometimes too much view rehearsal room as a stand-up routine. Um, I think that I've been given the tragic canon repeatedly in my career, and I do tend to go towards the darkness. Um, but I, uh, in my second season, I will be doing something, believe it or not, which actually is, uh, I think, very funny. Um, so, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't throw myself at Barbara of Seville for myself, do you know? I think that there are people who can do things like that. Iolanthe was an incredible, inspiration point for me. Cal was the first director I paired with uh, a piece of rep. And Cal, and, and I trained in comedy. I trained in Comedia dell'arte. I trained in clowning. It's a huge part of my physical theater background. But I do just tend to gravitate towards, I think, um, yes, tragedy. I do. I believe catharsis is, 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 is so key. And comedy can lend itself to that. But there aren't as many comic pieces which I love in the same way that I love um, the tragic canon. But also with all those women, like with my Carmen, uh, I'm always trying to give the woman the power. 
and that's very important to me. I'm always, I'm always, I think because I grew up with a very, very strong mother, my father died when I was quite young, I'm always obsessed about the female lens and the female journey in my pieces, so. Next question, yeah, there. What would Chekhov, who died in 1904, have made of La Traviata? Well, I think he would have just snotted throughout the entire performance with grief. I think it would have been... I think, he, I think Chekhov would have really loved uh, Act Two in particular, which is just psychological realism in music with, with uh, Germont and Alfredo and Violetta and the kind of literal step-by-step breakdown that Germont enacts upon Violetta, which again, makes Violetta think. I mean, that's what's inc- the, yeah, like, the, yeah, and she's, and she's going through this revelation, kind of uh, what, what we've been finding or thinking or what we're attempting to portray is she's going, I am gonna die. I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die in a month, in three months. And if I am destroying this other woman's life, this marriage, maybe I have to let go of Alfredo now. Maybe it's not, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's an, an earthed element to her own thought process to make this horrendous sacrifice. She's very selfless. It's incredible. And I think Verdi wrote this love letter to this woman deemed ennobled by the rest of society. And I think most of Chekhov's shows, even though he's often looking at the upper class because that's what was expected of Chekhov, he's ennobilizing the servants in all of those plays. You know, let's not forgive, forget that uh, the cherry orchard, the last image, gave birth to Samuel Beckett, the servant locked in the house. Beckett was all about, uh, uh, Chekhov was so much about the servants, you know? I think he'd love it. I think he'd love this production. Let's bring him back. It'll be a huge storyline. Another question? Question is about disagreements. Were there any disagreements on the production? Yeah, I mean, there weren't so many. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was. It, it could be about anything, but I mean, yeah. At, at the beginning of Act Three, um, well, just after the beginning of Act Three, yeah. We, we, we I, I just wanted to do it so somewhere else in a different place. I, I felt um, this particular when she reads the letter, I personally felt it was getting lost. But I mean, Daniel is wonderful because he's very open to discussion and open to trying new things. And especially coming from Basel, you, you, you really kind of. Let us have, um, you know, freedom as well. Uh, a lot of times when you do an opera man and you do a revival, especially in Germany, say, you, you know, you get three days, four days, and you just have to do exactly, you know, you have to stand in the exact same place. So it was lovely. It was a luxury to be able to work with Daniel and to be able to put your own stamp on it. But yeah, there, there, there was there was two, two places. Not so many with me. No. <laughs> we won't say who. <laughs> um, one last question, and then we have a treat to end with. So, who has the one, the last question? Well, of course we're going to do Wagner. We have no choice. It's the best music there is, next to Strauss and Puccini and Verdi and Janicek. <laughs> uh, yes, but I can't tell you that. But of course, we're, I'm I'm working on a massive uh, Wagner surprise. Um, but the Wagners take time and, and resource and money, but we're working on a huge um, idea that was really inspired by conversations with Chris Martin, our head of development. So, you know, but we can't, we can't afford a Wagner every year.